your copy of God's Word, I'll ask you to turn to the book of Galatians, where we will continue our study this morning. It's always a pleasure to gather with you and to bring before you the Lord's truth. As you get to the book of Galatians chapter 3, I want you to consider a few comparisons. Silver and diamond. Salad, a perfectly cooked ribeye. Soccer, all real sports. We're used to making comparisons. Many times we do this without even realizing that we do it. It's ingrained in us to realize the worth of one thing over another. This does not imply, however, that the lesser thing is evil or good for nothing. On the contrary, oftentimes there is beauty and value found in them, especially if you rightly understand their purpose and how they aid us in appreciating the thing of greater worth. I mean, the Four-carat, flawless, princess-cut diamond sparkles brighter when hoisted up by the silver band. And a perfectly cooked ribeye tastes even a little bit better when you decorate the plate with green stuff. And soccer, soccer, well, they have a ball, so. Just kidding, soccer's not that bad. Comparisons. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is aiding his readers in understanding a necessary comparison. On one side, he places the law of Moses with all of its beauty and its worth. The law given by God to Moses for the people of Israel. The law instituted so that God could be with his people and so they could enjoy his presence. The law that reflects God's perfect and righteous standard. The law that reveals the very character of God. What he's like. How he thinks. Listen to the testimony of scripture concerning the law. In Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 familiar verses. Blessed is the man who walked not in the counsel of the wicked. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If you desire blessings, meditate on God's law, the psalmist would say. Listen to how David describes God's law. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It couldn't get any better in David's mind. Psalm 94, 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. And if you've ever taken the time to read through Psalm 119, you can hear the psalmist's fascination with the truth of Scripture. He refers to its statutes, ordinances, and over and over again we hear about God's law. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, verse 1. 
Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. And listen to the psalmist's heart. Oh, I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The law was good. The law was beautiful. The law was just. Paul says in Romans 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But the law had a purpose that provided the context for its beauty and its wonder and its glory. The law was never meant to save. It was meant to condemn you as a rebellious sinner so that you may flee to Christ and be saved. So the Apostle Paul places on one side the law with all of his worth and all of his beauty so that we may see on the other side the infinite worth of God's promise of salvation by his grace through faith. The Apostle Paul is basically saying to the Galatians this morning, don't get it twisted. Don't get this backwards, Galatians. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. If not, why did Christ die? Galatians 2 20 and 21, we covered these verses before. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose or needlessly. These words act as a hinge on which the Apostle Paul swings from defending his apostolic authority to defending justification by faith. We started this section in chapter 3 a few weeks ago and we'll continue picking up in verse 15. I'll read down to verse 22, which is our text for today. So read with me. The Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians chapter 3 verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not, uh, yeah, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ may be given to those who believe. 
This is God's perfect and inspired word. Let us pray. And we'll dive into this text. Righteous Father, thank you for this morning. For this chance to gather with your people and to gaze into your word. Dear Spirit, we need your help. Please help us. Lord Jesus, feed your sheep. In your name, amen. In this section of scripture, Paul continues his assault on the Judaizers' false doctrine of justification by works of the law. And particularly the promotion of circumcision as a necessary work to be added to the work of Christ for a person to be justified before God. So as we approach this text, don't allow yourself to be rocked to sleep by Paul going back and forth, continuing the same argument that he's been continuing. Because each layer of Paul's argument is meant to add a different flavor to the salvation cake so that you may be able to savor your Savior. Today's layer consists of helping the Galatians and by extension helping us, you and I, to understand that the law was never meant to accomplish what it was never meant to accomplish. And he's doing this by helping us to understand what it is meant to accomplish. So the law was not meant to accomplish a certain thing, and Paul's going to help us understand that. So in Galatians 3, 15 through 22, we'll see three outcomes the law was never meant to accomplish. Look with me at the first one. Never assume the law of Moses was meant to override God's gracious promise. Paul starts with the really helpful illustrations to give the Galatians truth to weld the truth to. The truth concerning the law that Paul is about to hand them, he wants to make sure that they can hold on to it tightly. And so this example that Paul gives is like exposing their palm and pouring super glue into it so that they can hold on to the truth and grasp it the right way before he delivers it to them. We're familiar with illustrations and metaphors and similes and parables they're all used to help the learner grasp a hold of the truth it's like every time a preacher says it's like in a sermon it's an illustration it it's to help take the truth and to stamp it on your mind and upon your heart and paul gives an illustration look at verse 15 to give a human example Brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul sets up a common form of argumentation here. He, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If with man and all of his faults and all of his failings and all of his sin and all of his shortcomings, if even with man a ratified covenant cannot be broken if it's considered unbreakable, how much more a covenant that God has entered into, a promise that God has given. Galatians, brothers, 
Paul calls them over and over again. If a legally binding contract between two parties, humanly speaking, cannot be annulled or set aside or rendered ineffective, or he says even added to or supplemented in any way, what happens or what should you expect when God enters into a covenant? You might have heard the saying, God can do whatever he wants to do until God says what he's going to do. God can do whatever he wants to do until he speaks and he says what he's going to do. At that moment, he's bound by his word to do what he said he's going to do because God cannot lie. He will accomplish what he has said. So what contract does Paul have in mind? Look at verse 16 in your Bibles. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul the covenant, the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it, is no, longer, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Look at Paul's language. He goes from covenant to promise, from covenant to promise. He's using these two terms almost interchangeably. The promise that God entered into with Abraham was a contractual agreement that God entered into. It was a covenant, a, a promise, and we understand what a contract is. This is normal for us, usually between two parties. Usually one of the parties has a higher status than the other. But the Apostle Paul uses a specific Greek term to help us understand that this contract is actually a one-sided contract. He uses a Greek term that, uh, one of the two Greek terms that can be translated covenant, but this is the only one that indicates a unilateral or one-sided agreement. It's the translation of a Hebrew word, berith. Paul is trying to say this contract or this promise that he's going back and forth, that he's referring to, is actually a contract initiated by one party and carried out by that one party. And this is what we would expect if we consider what we read in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15 with me. Paul, I believe, using Abraham as a really perfect example and respond to what the Judaizers were likely saying. In Genesis chapter 15, we see where the Lord enters into this covenant with Abraham. When Abraham is first declared righteous, God promised Abraham many descendants in his old age. When it seemed likely impossible that he would have children. Look at verse 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6 of Genesis chapter 15. And he, speaking of the Lord, brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We're familiar with this text of Scripture. Abraham simply believed God, and he was credited as righteous for his faith. After this, we read all the necessary preparations to indicate that a covenant is about to take place happens in the text. The 
Animals are gathered together, they're sliced in half. And typically at this point, we will see both parties walk through the mutilated animals in order to indicate that they both are responsible for holding up their side of the bargain, of the contract, of the covenant, that they're both fully obligated to doing it. But that's not what the text indicates. Look at verse 12 of Genesis chapter 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. <laughs> Abram took a power nap. He, he falls to sleep right as the covenant is about to be made. Keep reading. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Let's pause for a second. <coughs> because here we get where Paul is referring to in our Galatians text of the 430 years. We see the first mention of it here. It's the time between the last known reaffirmation of the Abraham covenant and the time that the Lord gives the law at Mount Sinai. What we have in Genesis chapter 46, if you remember, Jacob is about to go into Egypt. You remember the famine. Joseph's there. He brings his family. And as he's getting ready to go into Egypt, God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to him at that time. That's Genesis chapter 46, verses 2 through 4. And then if you fast forward 430 years later, what we have is the Lord giving the law to Moses out at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 12, verse 40. From 1875 B.C. to 1445 B.C., you get 430 years. So Paul, when he says 430 years later, he's saying the promise came and then the law came afterwards. So pick back up in verse 14. Abraham is asleep or Abram is asleep. God has just told him that his people are going into Egypt and they'll be there for 400 years. Verse 14. But I will bring judgment on that on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in, uh, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then look at the staggering results in verse, verse 17. Then the sun had gone down, and it was darkness and dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Here we have the covenant being enacted, God entering into the covenant with Abraham, and he's, you have everything situated for two parties to establish this covenant. And what do we see? Abraham sleep. God enacts the covenant on his own. He, he purposes to accomplish everything on the covenant on his own. So think about Paul's argument. Judaizers, how can you say that righteousness comes by works? Galatians, how could you believe that entrance into Abraham's family is based on anything that you do? Not only that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, but when the covenant was being enacted, Abraham was catching some Z's. How could you believe that your works contributes anything? 
No, God promised on his own accord. Well, what about when Abraham offered up Isaac? And that's the actual reference that Paul is referring to in Galatians. So turn over to Genesis chapter 22. Because even when Abraham's faith was put into action, when he expressed the faith that he had inside him and a willingness to offer up his son, the text is pretty clear that it does not depend on Abraham, but God alone. Look at verse 15, starting in verse 15 of Genesis 22. This is after Abraham is already prepared to offer up his son. The Lord stops him. In verse 15 we read, And the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declared the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And here's our verse from Galatians. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Who's making the promise to complete this? The Lord is. I will do it. Surely I would accomplish it. Surely I will bring forth your offspring. So if you turn back over to the book of Galatians, you get Paul's point. It's abundantly clear. Righteousness must come by grace. Grace, not works. Why? Because grace came first. The promise came first. God's gracious promise was given to Abraham 645 years before the law came and the last mention of the Abrahamic covenant came 430 years before the Moses was given the law at Mount Sinai. Christian, never assume the law with all of his beauty and all of his worth and all of his goodness was ever meant to change, to alter, or to subtract or add to God's promises. It wasn't. He promised on his own accord. Grace is the channel of blessings and inheritance. Grace is the channel that salvation flows from. It cannot be with keeping of the law or any amount of good works because Good works fundamentally contradict the gracious manner in which God bestowed his blessing on his people. Are you saved this morning? Then praise God for his gracious promise. Because it's the channel that brought you the salvation that you have. Are you still dead in your trespasses and sin this morning? Then repent of your sins and beg the Lord for his mercy because no amount of good works that you have will save you. You need God's gracious gift of a new heart the same way that God gave it to Abraham. The term indicates gifting. He gave it to Abraham by a promise. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God the law says do this the gospel of grace says accept this have you the law of Moses was never meant to override God's gracious promise so don't make the false assumption that it was look at the next point 
Never assume the law of Moses is meant to be binding on God's people forever. If you're back in Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Paul does something here that I'm very thankful for. As I've had the opportunity to witness and to share my faith with people that the Lord has brought across my path, I've noticed a tendency from some people to reject Christianity or to reject uh, tenets of the Christian faith without ever putting forth a positive position of their own. This has frustrated me in the past. It's one thing to deny a worldview. It's one thing to deny a worldview. It's a totally different thing to offer up a cogent worldview in response to the one that you've denied. When Doug Bookman was here, he said something that has since helped me to crystallize this thought in my mind and to not be so frustrated when I encounter people who do this. He said, quote, it's easy to spot a rotten egg, but it's much harder to lay a better one, end quote. That's Doug Bookman wisdom right there. It's easy to spot a rotten egg, but it's much harder to lay a better egg. It's one thing for Paul to deny the law's ability to save the Galatians, but that's only a negative definition. That's what the law was not meant to accomplish. But here Paul provides a positive definition. To use Bookman's analogy, Paul not only spots the rotten egg, but he lays a better egg. And we'll see that this egg that he lays is golden because it shows how the egg was always meant to point to Christ. So why then the law, Paul asks, it was added because of transgressions. The law was added for the sake of turning sin into transgression. Paul doesn't say it was added because of sin. He says it was added because of transgression. This term carries the understanding of violating a known law. This is not some mistake or accident. Paul is using a term that refers to an active crossing over a known boundary. It's to go beyond, to overstep a moral border or limit. The law was added so that you would know that you are not some helpless person making mistakes, but that you are an active rebel against God. This is not an accidental stepping into your neighbor's yard while trying to retrieve a Frisbee. This is ignoring the no trespassing signs in bold red letters plastered on the outside of a stoned wall castle, then intentionally scaling that wall, storming the castle behind the wall, bursting into the throne room of the king, violently knocking him off of his royal chair, taking a hold of his only son and slaughtering the prince right before the watching eyes of the king. That's what transgression is. 
That's why the law was given so that you would know you're not a helpless person making mistakes, but that you're an active rebel against God. Transgressor. Paul says in Romans 5, 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. What's his point? The law exposes the reality and the depths of your depravity of yours and mine's. The law was added so that you would see your over-exaggerated self-esteem is really the boastful pride of life. The law was added so that you would see that your little white lie is a reflection of the father of lies and assault on the character of God who is the truth. The law was added so that you would see your prolonged stare at the gym is not some innocent thing that all men do, but it's an x-ray revealing the cancer growing in your adulterous heart. The law was added so that you would see your overly anxious heart is not just being mama bear, but a distrust and the loving, sovereign, righteous ruler. The law was added so that you would see your gossip disguised prayer request is not an attempt to care for the body, but it's a seed sown to produce discourse among the brothers. It was added, Paul says, because of transgression. The law was not meant to change you. It was meant to expose you to you. For you to see who you really are, because God already knows. The author to the Hebrews tells us no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But you have a way of justifying yourself. The law was added so that you can't. See, rules were never meant to change the human heart, right? The law can't change anyone. Your good works are incapable of producing a new you. Jeremiah says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leper his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The law is like a cage. The cage can keep the lion from eating the sheep, but it can't stop the lion from wanting to eat the sheep. Right? Praise a gracious God for his promised blessing that came through salvation, not adherence to the law. Amen? Romans 4 13 through 16, Paul says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, the Jewish people, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, Gentiles, for he is the father of us all. J. Max says this quote, 
That's John MacArthur. We're, we're on nickname terms. <laughs> Paul's answer, he's speaking about the question of why then the law, is direct. It's sobering. It was added because of transgression. The purpose of the law was to demonstrate to man his total sinfulness, his inability to please God on his own work, his need for mercy and grace. The law was added to show the depths of man's transgressions against law. It was given to drive him to desperate guilt and the awareness of his need for the deliverer. End quote. Paul would say the law is inferior. Because the law was never meant to save, it was meant to expose your need for the promise. Paul also talks about this time limit. Look at your Bibles. He talks about the law having an expiration date. He says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Paul uses this temporal marker to indicate that the law was provisional custodian until Christ arrived. In Exodus twelve forty, it records the day that God gave Moses the law at Mount Sinai. But another date was recorded on that same day. The day where the law would not be our guardian anymore. It's like when you check your email and you get that seven day free trial subscription. It's like sign up now for seven free days of Paramount Plus. Mm -hmm. Like great, yeah. I need the temptation to be a horrible father, ignore my kids, and binge watch all the Mission Impossibles. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a sucker for free, so you hit the subscribe button, enter your credit card information, then I immediately open up my calendar, and six days from then, I set a reminder to go and cancel the subscription. It's like the law of Moses had a 150 or 1500 year subscription to tutor mankind. The law was inferior because it always had a time limit. Then Paul talks about the method of implementation, how the law came. Look at your Bibles. He says, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Paul here is speaking of instrumentality. Uh, how the promise was delivered and how the law was delivered. The argument is the law, the argument is the law is inferior to the promise because God gave the promise directly to Abraham himself, but the law he gave to angels who gave it to Moses, who gave it to the people of Israel. He, he uses this Hebrew idiom. It, it means uh, by the hand of a mediator, our Bibles translates it, put in place. Put in place through angels. It carries the understanding of the thought of being ordained or put into proper systematic order. And it's coupled with the divine passive. This means that God put it in place through angels. By intermediary or the better translation, in my opinion, is a mediator. God gave the message to the angels, who gave the message to Moses, who gave the message to the people of Israel. A mediator, a, a negotiator, someone who acts as a link between two parties. We're familiar with this. 
All of this is not crystal clear in my mind, but the scriptures are clear that God used angels in some way to reveal the law to Moses. Rabbinic literature attests to this, and the scriptures attest to this as well. If you guys remember Stephen in the book of Acts, he's preaching to the people of Israel right before he is about to be stoned, and he's talking about Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus. And in Acts chapter 7, verses 36 to 38, we read, This man, speaking of Moses, led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelite, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angels who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracles to give to us. Stephen understood God used angels somehow to communicate the message. He says it again further down in that same dissertation before he stoned verse 52 which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one to whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And our beloved Pastor Bart will expound these verses for us later on today. Hebrews 2 one through three, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just, just, just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The law being mediated in this way also emphasizes distance between Israel and God. Someone needed to stand between both parties and link them together. The angels, who are not man, but they're also who? Not God. They needed a mediator for the law. But now think about the promise. How did God deliver the promise to Abraham? He came to him. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. If you remember in Genesis 18, right before Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, God even comes and has dinner with Abraham. That's, that's a dinner guest. That's who you want to show up. Well, I don't know. That'd be scary. <laughs> God himself shows up to give the promise. And the promise was always meant to point to and forward to the offspring, the single individual one who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who if you are a believer this morning, he's your mediator, but he's God and he's man. We don't have angels to go between. We have God himself, First Timothy 2, 3 through 6, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people. God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Let me ask a question. Which mediator do you want? The angels? Through the law? 
or the perfect God man through the promise. Another aspect of this contract that we're talking about here has to do with the responsibility for both parties to keep their end of the bargain up. The promise associated with giving the promises associated with giving the law were dependent on both parties fulfilling their responsibility, but the promise given to Abraham was only dependent upon God. Listen as I read these verses from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. Moses is writing his farewell, farewell section before he's about to die. He says, I have set before you today good, death, and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering in to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away, you and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I've called heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you death and cursing and life. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and your length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord, listen to Moses, swore to your father, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He said he was going to give it to Abraham, but when we're talking about the law, they had to obey. Paul is making a very simple argument. The law couldn't change anyone, couldn't change anything. But the promise we know changes hearts, right? And if you have raised kids or raising kids or ever been a kid, I think that covers everyone, right? <laughs> you get the Apostle Paul's arguments. Rules and regulations don't change the heart. For a person to be made right with God, they need a new heart, something that the law was not able to provide. You can give a child rules and they might do the right thing, but you can never make them do the right thing for the right reasons. That's where the law had limitations. They might do the right thing, but they will never have a changed heart. You might say it this way. Polite kids may be polite, but that doesn't make them born again. True that? The law does not solve the problem and only makes an offense now look at the third point as we close never assume the law of moses was meant to cure our terrible sinful condition paul says in verse 21 of galatians chapter 3 is the law then contrary to the promise of god essentially paul asks a more specified version of the question that he already asked in verse 19 Verse 19, why then the law? Verse 21, is the law contrary? That's, that's the question at hand. 
And in Paul-like fashion, Paul answers his own question. May it never be. Why? Because the law could not give life. Look at what he says. Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Follow Paul's argument. If God gave a life-giving law, that would be contrary to the promises of God. If God gave a law that a person could then earn everlasting life through, that would actually be a contradiction. If they could obey and adhere a law and earn life from it, that is a contradiction to faith alone. But the law revealed how people should live. It did not provide them with the power to be able to live in a way to please God. That's not what the law was meant to do. And I think maybe I'm sweet on Paul, but he strikes a beautiful balance here. He's so careful as to not make the law out to be evil because it's not. It's beauty in it. It's glory in it. I mean, the people of Israel got to be in God's presence because of the law. There's worth to it. There's value in it. But the law had a purpose. And the purpose is not why the the Judaizers are trying to utilize the law. And that's Paul's problem with them. The law was not meant to justify a person to find favor in God's sight. And that's what the Judaizers are promoting. The law and the promise, they do fit together in God's economy, but they just play different roles. They're different roles on the same team. The role of the law is guardian to lead people to Christ, the promise. Rather, in the Old Testament, the saints who look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ are us church-age believers who look back on the cross and what God has accomplished in history. It's always been grace alone through faith alone. That's always the mean that God has chose to save, and the law has always been a, point, uh, a way to reveal our need for God to be gracious to us. And I think that this is beautiful, the way that Paul ends it. Look at verse 22. But the scriptures, scripture imprisons everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ may be given to those who believe. The promise, Paul would say, can grant life. The law cannot because the promise pointed forward to a person. The son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the one who came to defeat sin, death, in the grave. The law served the promise because it revealed the only way to obtain righteousness is through the cross and grace in Christ. They're complementary. They're like ketchup and mustard. They go together. If you disagree, you're wrong. <laughs> Don't abandon a proper understanding of the law, Christian. Especially when you witness to others, the law is your friend. The law is helpful. The law helps you when you're evangelizing and when you're teaching people the truth. The law is necessary to deflate human pride and to expose human sinfulness. Use the law. It's good. Point people to it. It's right. But it does not save. 
And Paul says all of Scripture, or but the Scripture. He's saying the whole testimony of Scripture reveals this. You can't save yourself. You need someone else to do it. You're imprisoned by the fact that you are a sinner, a gross offenser against God. But praise be to God because he sent the Savior. We'll get to these verses here in a little bit, but it really synthesizes Paul's whole argument here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we may receive the adoption as sons. Here's my question. Do you know him? Do you know this son? If not, I'd love to talk to you after class to introduce you to your only hope. The one who our text refers to as the promise. The one that the law was always meant to point you to. If you don't know him, I pray that you will get to know him. Amen? Let me pray for us.